Welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. I'll jump right into it this time. Part two of our holiday medley highlights the best moments on the pod from June through December. Thanks again to everybody that came on this year. You guys made this what it is. It's so much fun to pick the brains of people much, much smarter than me. And I'm so excited to see what we can make this in 2022. Our special top stock picks for 2022 report is now live. Uh, the free sign-up link is in the episode bio or head over to shaversresearch.com. You can find it essentially anywhere you click. We had our traders outline some of their top picks for the new year. And looking back, I just pushed out a piece highlighting some of our 2021 hits, which include Dillard's, Datadog, and Charles Schwab all of which boasted incredibly healthy year-to-date returns. So you're going to want to get your hands on that 2022 report. We begin part two with my favorite and most popular episode of the year. This is just a clip, but I urge you to listen to it in its entirety. CBOs Henry Schwartz and Rob Hawking discuss the top five mistakes they see options traders make nowadays. And here is Rob's list. Well, you know, power ranking is everything these days on the internet for better or for worse you know it's clicky it's grabby so i want to take a stab at that here same order rob you can go first power rank the top five mistakes options traders tend to make sure yeah i love the question and and i'm definitely guilty of many of these when i started in the business but uh top five mistakes let's see i would probably start with not having a clear entry and exit point for your trade you know, and, and I would really stress the exit point part. I, I think it's easy to track different stocks and find ones you like or companies, you know, that you associate with. But then, you know, you have to take that general interest and turn it into clear metrics of, of where you will, you know, get into a trade and then where, you know, you'll get out. And that applies to setting criteria, you know, around both winners and losers, because let's face it, you know, not all trades are winners, even though we like to think they are. And that, would, that really leads right into, I guess, my number two mistake, which would be, you know, don't let emotions drive your trading decisions. You know, to be successful, you know, it's helpful to remove all emotion. You know, when emotion is involved, it becomes easy to take your winners off too soon and, and ride your losers longer than you should. And, and by setting these clear entry and exit points, as I mentioned, and removing that emotional component from your trading, it helps eliminate, you know, second guessing your decisions in the heat of the moment. And, and ultimately, you know, playing Monday morning quarterback with your with your trading decisions tends to always be a losing proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Third, uh, I would point to is, is not fully understanding the liquidity of the product, you know, you're trading before entering the trade. For some products, it can be easier to put on a position than to take it off. But, you know, by understanding the liquidity constraints of each product you trade, I think it helps you be more realistic about, you know, setting those entry and exit points. And then really the associated performance that you can expect and be realistic about, you know, what, what's possible. Let's see, fourth, I would say, you know, misunderstanding leverage. Options provide a source of leverage because, you know, of their 100 multiplier and can appear, you know, at times quite a bit cheaper to purchase when in comparison to an actual stock. But, uh, you know, this can lead investors to having a larger notional option positions than they otherwise would have thought. And, and if they're unfamiliar with this component, sometimes it can lead you to make poor decisions. 
um, and some, you know, unanticipated consequences. And then lastly, I would say number five uh, is not understanding the impact of corporate actions and, and what, you know, their, their impact on option positions. You know, in many situations, um, options have to be adjusted due to stock splits, mergers or acquisitions, special dividends or reverse splits. And, you know, for example, when a cash dividend is paid out, it typically, you know, doesn't have an effect on the option. But when a stock split, you know, split occurs, it can affect the strike price of the option. So to understand when and how these different events impact your positions uh, becomes extremely important. Tony Batista of Tasty Trade is back, and I really liked what he had to say here about the options Greeks. I, I think the most important thing for a retail trader to understand is the Greeks. I think that's the first thing that they should be learning on, on day one. Totally. I mean, uh, Delta is, is shares. Uh, theta is how much it costs you to hold this position. Like the position that I gave you, the theta decay is mm-hmm. basically zero. The theta cost is basically zero. So it doesn't cost you anything to hold this trade. I mean, there's no decay to these options. My example before where I was showing, you know, usually the, the, the retail customer buys the $1 option. That would be 39 call in, in July in BBY um, with a stock trading at 33. That's $6 higher. It has a delta of 25. So if the stock moves a dollar, that option should go up by 25 cents. The same process that I gave you if the option, if the stock goes up by a dollar, this spread should go up and will go up by a dollar because it's 100 deltas. Right. I mean, it's just giving you bang for your buck. And I think strategy is going to be and has been for quite some years the the new way to trade as opposed to finding what's going to go higher, what's going to go lower. People are so sophisticated. Now, whether you use you know charts or you use probabilities of success, it doesn't matter to me anymore. Now it comes down to what's the strategy? What strategy are you going to use with the amount of money you have? to maximize your return. Chris Pribel returns. It's time to crack open the tape from a winning AMD trade over the summer. We compare options trading to slumps in golf and baseball right up my alley. And you pointed out how, you know, the bad trades tend to drive you more. And I, I think there are so many similarities between kind of like, you know, you can have it, Sometimes you can't. It, it, it can come and go so quickly. I, I, I just see so much connective tissue between the two. I agree 100%. I've always told people, professional golf, you'll see someone go out and shoot a 63, which is an incredible score. And I'll tell him, I, I'll wager you tomorrow that he does not shoot better than a 70 because you have one good round and then your next round is usually above average or poor. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare that you see a professional trader or a golfer shoot the 63 and come back with a 65. And then on the third round, shoot another 65. It's very hard to stay on top of your game every day. And as traders, we have five days a week that the tournament's open. Mm-hmm. You got to be prepared for five days. You know, those, that's each week is a tournament. I agree. You know, when you, when you shoot around that, you're unhappy with i mean it just provides that fuel like you're better than this get back out there do more work so that this doesn't happen again 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's, I guess, a feeling of desperation, and then you turn that into a positive expectancy that if you work hard, if you do the work, if you read, you will find answers. And when the tournament opens or the stock market opens, you can then apply what you worked on and put it to action. And oftentimes you'll see that come to fruition. And it really is, like you said, it's an empowering feeling because you went from the top back to the bottom and then you worked yourself back to the top. Mm-hmm. It's the bull cycle of emotions. I think it's one of the benefits of having stop losses on your option trades and your stock trades. Because you're going to get up to the plate and you're going to swing and miss. Mm-hmm. And you're going to take the 30% or 40 or 50% loss. But you can't be afraid to get back in the batter's box and hit the next home run. Right. And some, of the, some of the best baseball players have come out of a slump and went on to perform incredible feats. And it was right after they were in one of the worst slumps of their career. I mean, I, I could say Barry Bonds. I read about Stan Musial. They come out of slumps and they go on these hot streaks. And you, you just got to remember that you can do it. You've got to put in the work. It's going to come true. But in the words of Jim Valvano, you, you can't give up. You got to keep going. Mm-hmm. Senior VP of Research Todd Salamone makes his pod debut on August 18th. I loved picking his brain here on his trade management style. Uh, I, I want to talk about kind of your trade management philosophy here. Do you have any parting wisdom you'd like to give to our listeners as far as getting started, you know, sticking to a process, like you said, finding an edge? You alluded to it before, but I'll give you one last chance to yeah. talk about it. Well, yes. And, and, and again, I'm going to talk purely from an options trader. And I mentioned before uh, timing and aligning indicators and that's because options have a finite life, and as an option buyer, I'm fighting that time decay. So first and foremost, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how good you think you are, your win rate when you're buying options is going to be less than 50%. And that's tough for people to handle, mm-hmm. uh, especially those that are well-educated and did well in school, because if you're taking a test and you're right less than 50% of the time, you're not moving on. Oh, you're screwed. Uh, and that's tough and, and for people to grasp. And, and let's face it, we are all human beings. We hate being wrong. And uh, the reality is, as an option buyer, because you have a finite life, you can't buy a stock and hold it on for the next 50 years, and uh, and you got that time time decay, your win rate will be less than 50%. If you can't live with that, you shouldn't be buying options. Now, does that mean you're going to lose money because your win rate's less than 50%? Absolutely not. No, hell no. And I'd welcome any of you guys, any of you listeners to call in if you're interested in uh, buying some of or subscribing to our newsletters at Alpha Recommendations to ask for a track record. And you'll see some great returns, but you'll also see more losing trades and winning trades. So how does that happen? Our average win is going to be bigger than our average loss. And that goes back to the age-old maxim, and I'm sure you've heard it before, and I've heard it, uh, I'm exaggerating a million times since I've become a trader, you've got to let your profits run and cut your losses short. So I know that when I lose, I'm going to lose on average probably 
40 to 50, maybe take a 60% loss on a trade. Mm -hmm. So in order for me to be profitable, I cannot be taking profits at 70 and 80%, no matter how uh, tempting that is. I'm at least shoot every time I put on a trade. And if I don't think that option can produce a 100% return or better, I'm not going to do the trade. And I'm going to be disciplined to stay in for that profit. Options, the beauty of options is you can only lose what you put in the trade, but your maximum profit potential when you're buying them is unlimited. So, if, again, if you look at our average win rate on some of our products, some of them are more than 100%. And that's not because we're cutting, we're taking profits right away at 20 and 30%, right. no matter how tempting it is. We're letting our profits run. And generally, what we do in some services is if it gets to 100% or more, we might tell our subscribers to close half the position and see if that other half can run. At the very least, the worst case possible, we're going to have a break even on the trade. If we close that first half above 100%, we will have a profit on that trade no matter how the second half turns out. But a lot of times, we might close one half out at 120% and the second half out at 200%, resulting exactly. in 160% profit. But again, we made the next two or three trades might be losers. And if they're 40, 40% or so, we still got an overall gain. So, you know, again, if you're going to be buying options, know your win rate's going to be less than 50%. But know, so now the question becomes, how am I going to make money bottom line over a huge number of trades over the next year? You're going to do that because your average win is going to be a lot more than your average loss. And... And if you go into options trading, options buying specifically with that philosophy, you will do well and do well, assuming you have some edge over the options market, which I believe we have because we've got a lot of tools, such as the volatility scorecard that tells us what options, what underlying stocks have typically been good for option buyers. And these are tools that we rely on. And right now with our screen, screens that we think give us an edge over other market participants in the stock market and over option buyers in the options market. Adam Warner is back for the third time this year, and even though it's a September episode, his comments about specific option strategies during seasonality I found very pertinent, especially as we're entering a new year. And the September doldrums while notable, it's nothing to really kind of hit the panic button for. Uh, but at the same time, during these monthly slumps or seasonal doldrums, whatever you want, whatever term you want to use, what advice can you offer retail traders or new options traders who find themselves stuck in this little rut? Um, I kind of like the like the backspread strategy where you um, that's kind of a defensive strategy, but where you like a typical one is like. You buy one put of a higher strike, excuse me, you sell one put of a higher strike and buy two of a lower strike and you get a credit for it. And um, if if the market goes up or flatlines, you, you pocket that credit. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be that substantial. But if, if you um, run into like, a volatility spike or a, you know, a market example would probably be one of the same thing. You, um, you don't have that extra protection and the, um, the spread can do very well for you and has unlimited upside and a real implosion. And that's not likely. 
but it's a good, it's kind of a cheap um, insurance policy because I, I think um, it seems like that, that, that spread does the worst in a slow down move. And right now, that, that kind of seems like the least likely event. It seems like the most likely possibilities are, I think the most likely is a continued grind higher. And the more likely outlier is like some acceleration on the downside. Mm-hmm. I just don't see like a slow downside at this point. Jamal Chandler comes on again in this segment on natural gas, energy, and commodities was great. I mean, Jamal is pure gold. You know, there's so much going on, like we've talked about. Often feels like the energy situation is getting swept under the rug, especially as it pertains to Europe and the supply chain. Uh, and then now we've got natural gas, looking at what, steepest loss, one-day loss in a year, I think, today. Um, you know, What should forward-thinking traders be looking at overseas as to how these things can impact, you know, the U.S. market ecosystem? Um, number one, keep a close eye on your gas bills. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's yeah. going to get, it might get a little crazy in the coming months. If we, we have, uh, you know, a, a serious cold snap, we could see some surge in prices even more because a lot of these uh, companies, you know, who are not hedged themselves are going to have to go out and, and buy spot prices. Mm-hmm. Um, um, for lateral gas, for example, right now, the biggest thing to pay attention to is what they call that, that widow maker spread. So if you pull up that gas and you look at the different futures, um, if you look at the spread between March and April, which signifies the end of winter, um, that's what's called that widow maker spread. And right now it's about, you know, 1.6, I think a dollar and 60, you know, BTUs or whatever, um, between the two. And to give you an indication of where, how far it's moved in June, it was 40 cents. So it's like quadrupled in, wow. in the, the certain amount of time. So that's one of the things that the energy traders are watching big time. But when you look at the performances of, of key commodities uh, over the last, you know, I should say it's um, from September, like in September alone, mm-hmm. not gas moved 32%. Uh, you know, another big one was, was this is not energy, but cotton moved 14%. So you, know, you could expect to maybe pay more for clothes at some point because that's how these things end up playing out. On the other end, gold and silver have been down. I mean, gold and, and sil- gold's down 3%, silver was down 4- 8% in the month of September. So that gas has been really on the move. And of course, crude, I mean, crude's up, you know, 10% um, in the month of September. So, you know, energy prices have really skyrocketed more recently. And I think the thing to really notice is how um, many central banks, I think, um, I don't know if quite many in Europe yet, but you've seen uh, central banks starting to raise rates um, in, in not only anticipation of eventually U.S. raising rates, but also because to counteract uh, this situation that we're seeing with the energy prices. So I think at some point, um, many in, in Europe are going to raise. I mean, I, I think um, Russia raised more recently. Who knows if they're going to have to raise again because natural gas really hits them. Of course, they have the biggest natural gas company in Gazprom out there. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a real it's a real issue, and it's something to pay attention to going forward. Steve Sears joins me for an October twenty first episode. This one cracked my top five. There's nothing else that needs to be said. Uh, we, we we've danced around the topic about risk appetites now, and especially as it pertains to volatility. But you've got the three notable talking points 
right now being you know the supply chain nightmare, energy prices, and inflation. If you're an options trader, what are you looking for with these storylines prevalent in seemingly not fading from storylines anytime soon? Well, thanks for asking me such an easy, an easy question. <laughs> I, I, I think that what we're seeing in the options market is an excess of near-termism. Mm-hmm. So if you were to go take a look at the at the CBOE futures curve, you're going to see that it's perhaps it's more steeply sloping, that it shows an elevated risk in the future. That's a normal shape, but the question is, is it more elevated than it should be? And, and, that's, and that's the giant debate. So you're seeing certain event risk priced in into what's called kinks in the curve, reflecting inflation, stagflation, uh, the debt ceiling not being lifted, rates rising, the 10 years now 1.65. These are being dealt with oftentimes in the options markets by focusing on weekly options. So if, you, if there are 252 trading days in a year, what you're seeing now is most people have gone, I won't say most, many people have gone from, from expressing views three months out into the future where there's this perfect, often perfect mix of volatility and liquidity, premium, yep. and they're bringing it in much, much closer. So you're seeing a lot of stuff occurring in one to two weeks segments. And, and that's really what the cadence is. In, in the options market. Now, if you can engage in, in what we call you know, time arbitrage, there are ways to take advantage of some of the short-term and even long-term concerns within options, and that, that's sort of the, the beautiful sort of nature of, of the puts and calls, but people are staying in close. They're not taking on huge amounts of risk, and they're doing things that are reflexive, like the expectations are pretty tepid for third-quarter earnings. So what do people do? What you've seen a lot of people do is they just buy calls on stocks that they think are going to do better than expected. And guess what? So far, that strategy has worked. Now, you take inflation and stagflation, which are these terrible hobgoblins you throw in the supply chain issues. And strangely enough, what you see happen is there is a paucity of risk-averse trading going on. You're not seeing people do huge index hedges and SBX, which is really the strategic hedge, nor are you seeing a massive amount of tactical hedging or shorting in spider options or other other such uh, barometers. And to me, what that says is that the options market, which I think is a smarter version of the stock market, is taking kind of a trust but verify approach, so they're still afraid of being outside of the market and missing out. But at the same time, they're not willing to go 100% in. And how that gets stacked out is largely a personal question, you know, determined by yes. psychology, age. Uh, Everything we just talked about. Yeah. But this is not, we're staying very close. It's like being in a close quarters combat, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to going on these long range reconnaissance patrols. And our last guest of 2021, CBO's Rob Hawking and Michael Izaki, talk broadly about the advice they give their younger selves. It was alluded to before, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention both of your own distinguished trading careers. For retail traders starting out, um, what are some lessons learned 
perhaps the hard way? And then how would you give, you know, what would be some advice you would give to your younger self uh, when you're basically learning this whole new language of options trading? So I came into the industry straight out of undergrad about, about 20 years ago, and I had very little understanding of derivatives and even more specifically the options industry. Um, but it was exciting. It was very competitive, and I fell in love with that right out of the start. Um, if I was talking to my former younger self, uh, I would encourage him to do a couple of things. Uh, one, take advantage of the many resources today to submerge yourself in the learning. Um, the internet wasn't as prevalent back when I first got in the business, and there were really, you know, a couple of, of resources that you could use. One of which uh, that my firm that hired me gave me right away was the Shelley Natenberg book. It was Options, Volatility, and Pricing. Um, it was kind of re regarded as, as the Bible for all young people getting into the market at the time. And but now with the internet, you have you know, call it option simulators, online courses, etc., all at your disposal. Take advantage of them and, and really learn the ins and outs and risk rewards of the different option positions, payouts, probabilities, like all of that will get you more comfortable with introducing options to your portfolio. Second, I would say is a big one. And this one I always, I tell everyone that asks this question is set goals around your trades before you enter them. So strict entry, entry points, exit points, remove emotion from trading. And, and it allows you to focus on building consistent strategies without that, you know, getting sucked into that. I want to hold on to the, hold on to my losers a little too long, or I cut my winners because I'm happy a little too quickly. Um, this concept is super important. Um, just because emotion can really drive you in the heat of the moment. And, and the more you can remove that, generally the more successful you can be. Very well said, and I love the continuity there because for faithful listeners, that was Rob's number one common mistake that mm -hmm. options traders make back from from June. So he nailed it right there. Uh, but <laughs> Michael, what do you got for me? I, I learned the hard way, Patrick. There you go. Hey, that's that's how we all learn. Experience is the best teacher. So I get to age myself further and say the internet was definitely not a thing when I got into the business. Um, I started it out with a firm called O'Connor and Associates. Uh, back in 1994, and um, I think that the one difference is that at the time, you'd come out of university and go down to work for O'Connor or Hall or Kubernetes and Sysasquahan, et cetera, and they would send you down to the floor, and they would also train you and teach you, and uh, that was really the only way, I would say, to become really deeply immersed into options, whereas today, I feel like you can really learn a lot about options First of all, I'd say the Natenberg book for sure is a good one. Also, Macmillan had a book that uh, a lot of folks have on their bookshelf that, that the things still apply to today. Um, but in addition to the books, the resources that are available today, um, but learning the basics is really, really key, right? I wouldn't advise people to go in there and say, oh, well, people bought Tesla calls and it ripped higher and they made a fortune, so now I have to do that. And I think it's really important to understand the payoff profiles of a call, the payoff profiles of a put, and long call and short put, and how they work together, because that's actually, even to this day, I still think back to two-week class. From all the way back then, whenever I think of any kind of, a, of a investment in a structure that includes options, because those are the fundamentals of all structured notes and, and everything else is, is just that type of a payoff profile. 
Um, other other advice that I would give to people is trade more, and, and that's not that's you know, trade simulators are, are also a great opportunity. You know, one thing that I, I definitely didn't do enough of is that I would just be so so gassed by the end of the trading that I would just be be tapped out, right? Or you know just being in the markets, I felt like I wasn't really trading as much as, as I would like to have. And, you know, a lot of times just the repetition is super important. And the most important thing about working for like a, a Hall or an O'Connor or, or Susquehanna is the mentorship that comes with it, right? So what I would say to people is try to find a mentor and that mentor could be an influencer you trust. It could be the Options Institute where, you know, you actually can, can get familiar with our educators and, and get to know them. And find find folks that you really trust and believe in and try to establish a relationship and learn from them.